This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Rode Microphones. Hi, I'm Oakley Anderson-Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Today, I'm talking with two DPs, Andrew Ackerman, who shot the brilliant, colorful underwater documentary Chasing Coral, and Auntie Chang, who DP'd the nuanced black-and-white narrative Gook, set during the 1992 LA riots. While the style of productions are practically polar opposites of each other, from underwater time-lapse nightmares to stylized lighting for black and white, they find common ground in the joy of telling a story through the visual image. This is Oakley Anderson Moore from No Film School, and I am sitting down in the living room of the No Film School apartment in Park City. We are having a DP discussion, and first on the block is Andrew Ackerman, uh, the DP for Chasing Carl. Andrew, thanks for coming. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, the first thing I want to ask you, I want to just uh, dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about Chasing Coral? Yeah, you mean, like the synopsis or just a little bit about how it came together? Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit. Like, how did you come on board and what did Jeff tell you the film was going to be? So, I actually saw Chasing Ice on a first date in college. And when my friends asked me what I wanted to do, I was like, that, that's what I want to do. I want to be, and I was studying film and I wanted to be an independent filmmaker. And I told one of my friends that and she goes, well, do you want to meet James Baylock? And long story short, I moved to Boulder to be around Jeff and that team. No kidding. And I ended up getting an internship and working in the same office as him. And I had grown up in Florida, scuba diving, you know, my whole life. And I had gotten into underwater photography and I really wanted to do that. And I kind of thought I was giving up that dream when I moved to Boulder of being an underwater cinematographer, at least for the time being. And then Jeff goes, you know, one day comes up to me, goes, do you want to go to Bermuda with me in two weeks? I was they went, yes, I would love to do that. And that was the very first shoot for this film. And we didn't quite have an idea for what the film would be. We just had gotten this really interesting email and offer from this guy named Richard, who ended up being one of the main characters. And we went to Bermuda and we started to realize there was a really amazing story there. And I just started working with Jeff and he didn't know how to dive. So I, you know, he taught me a lot, a ton about film. Wow, and so I you taught learned him a lot how to diving. dive on this project? He learned how to, I had grown up oh, diving. Okay. He learned how to dive. You taught him how to dive. Yeah, yeah. I, I reversed how to dive. that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and that's, and then we kind of just, it, the story just evolved and we got to know Richard a lot better. And, and that just became this natural progression of as, as we were trying to figure out the challenges of putting time-lapse cameras underwater, the team got bigger and, you know, we met Richard and that team got bigger and we met Zach and Trevor and that team got bigger and and then those stories just really kept evolving and the emotions just kind of spending months and months over the course of years together we, you know we found that certain people were more emotional and like their stories just it became this team story you know more than an individual and it was yeah it became really powerful so one of the interesting things about chasing coral is that um you're you're filming and capturing a story, and part of that story is that you're trying to film and capture the coral bleaching. Um, had you had experience before doing time lapse? I mean, this you know, for people listening home, if, if chasing coral, no one had ever really captured the coral bleaching events in this time lapse way, or really in any way. So it's pretty revolutionary. Had you had experience with that type of cinematography, or you know, I, I mean. I had done time lapses, you know, with, with cameras and I had, I'd put those in, in little videos and, but 
I hadn't, I mean, no one had really done underwater time lapses. I mean, I mean, very few people have done them in fish tanks and they're really, really gorgeous, but no one had tried to do them in the ocean. So no, I mean, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) That was an unbelievable challenge. And that was really, really interesting. And yeah, it was cool to see there, you know, there's definitely an evolution of it start. It didn't even start as this, you know, very cinematic photographic approach. The first questions were, how do you physically do this? And then that evolved to like, okay, well now we have a technology, but this needs to be cinematic because we want this to be a feature length film that's seen on a big screen. You can't have this janky little GoPro time-lapse underwater. (laughs) Um, So it was, but it was interesting because there were such challenges just to having it exist. Um, So yeah. And and in the end it ended up being completely manual time-lapse, which was a definite, like a very hard decision to make because it's involves just so much time spent underwater it, it, you know, it, yeah, it's unheard of. Like I, I, no one's done that underwater for very, very good reason. I wouldn't want to do that again. <laughs> like I don't want to make that a career. <laughs> yeah. So when you say manual for people that are, are listening, you know, you started and you see this in the film, you started with, you know, cameras that were very elaborately made to capture that. And then you had to start doing it manually as in diving each day at different times and putting up like manually setting the tripod down and all that. Can you we got these camera systems to work, but we realized picking a spot on a coral reef that would bleach was impossible. And we talked to scientists and we, everyone, and just, it was like a completely impossible task. So yeah, we realized we had to do manual time lapses and that involved taking like the red in an underwater housing on a tripod down to these different sites that you'd pick on a reef, right? So each day, depending on how big the reef was, it would depend on which team was where. You know, I, I think I was in New Caledonia. I had 20 or 30 sites. And every day I'd do every one of those sites wide, tight, for two minutes of recording. Um, and every day. And just every day you could get out there, you'd do that. And you'd go on like a two-hour dive at three feet, right? So it wasn't really intense, insane diving. But you'd have this crazy surge. And where I was... After 11 a.m., the waves got really big and you just get pushed around. And you're trying to hold, you're not taking photos, like you're two minutes of video as steady as you can make it. And so that was definitely a challenge. And I mean, we did that for months and, and we had done that on these islands in Australia. That, the hardest part was we, we had done this in Australia, like we were prepped for it, we were ready for it. And then all these areas that were supposed to bleach didn't bleach. So we packed up overnight, went to these different places and had to redo that, all that. And like, that was definitely this kind of, like panic manic moment of (laughs) oh my gosh this is so much time underwater and yeah that's what that involved and so how many days would that have been total that you had to do the manual like how many times did you go down to do that if you can remember I I I don't remember I mean I probably spent a good hundred hours underwater in those three months if not more but I mean, every day you could go underwater, you were spending two to four hours underwater. And and sometimes the the weather was bad and sometimes the wind picked up and you, you just couldn't go and didn't make any sense. And every once in a while you try and take a day off, <laughs> um, like edit some of the footage. But yeah, it was, a, it was an enormous amount of time. I feel like I, I might've heard Jeff, the director say that with the tripods, you weren't really allowed to, um, you know, drill anything into the ocean floor. Like how did you how did you keep those locked down underwater with all the current and everything? It was like a crazy, you know, do it yourself system. Um, we had PVC pipe that we'd pound into the sand for the feet of the tripod, <laughs> but even that there's a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. And then we had laser pointers mounted. We like 
we put GoPro sticky mounts to the housing and then put these underwater laser pointers and zip tied them to the housing and all these different, and you know, three different axes. And then you'd put like a big nail or screw in. It's just in sand. So it wasn't hitting rock or you wouldn't drill anything in. And then you'd put the camera in and line the laser pointer up. And then you also had these slates um, that you had taken from the first day. And that's what Zach talked about, which was really interesting because you, you're always looking at day one. So over the course of, two months, you're watching it die progressively. And you're like looking at your day one, which looks so beautiful. And you're trying to match that frame up as the coral's dying. And so that was like, it was a combination of those things of how do you get this frame exactly the same, but it was, and you could tell in the footage it's, it was impossible to get it exactly the same, but it looks smooth because our graphics guys did a great job. Graphics team. Cool. Yeah. Gender fair. I mean, it looks, it's amazing because you see the before and after and it's just, you know, irrefutable, I guess would be the word. Um, you know, on top of all that, at the same time, you're also trying to film the rest of the movie, um, filming underwater as you guys are setting these things up and filming characters above water. What was your involvement in that kind of footage? Uh, were you shooting that as well? And how did that fit in the whole picture? I was, and that was by far the greatest challenge for me, actually. Um, cause yeah, we needed to document above water. We needed to document underwater. And then we also had to install cameras and, I mean, there'd be times where we'd be on a dive boat, like a rented chartered dive boat going out and the, the other deck hands that like that work for the boat didn't know how to set anchors correctly. So I would be the one doing that. That was the thing that I would like to get better at. And that was the thing that was definitely the hardest was trying to balance all those different roles of, you know, like needing to set the camera in the housing. Cause there's a very particular way that that has to go, but then also needing another, you know, camera person or other DP on the boat to be able to film with that camera and, and then having to go and install. I mean, that, that was definitely the hardest challenge of this constant shuffling of roles and a lot of different hats and, you know, trying to think of like safety first. And then, cause you, you know, when we were installing these cameras for a huge chunk of the last three years was installing these big cameras, that was construction underwater. You know, we're drilling, we're hammering, we're screwing, we're nailing, we're carrying, I think for each camera, we brought about a thousand pounds of weight down. You know, sometimes we, sometimes they were 200 pound elevator weights or hundreds of pounds of chain. Cause you had to weigh this thing down and you're driving rebar six feet into the sand. So that was by far the hardest part was to be doing that and thinking about that. And then also trying to think about the cinematic experience of that. And a lot of times I just couldn't, and I had to just think about the, the actual installation because it, it would have been really easy to make a mistake and have that be a bad situation. But I will say having, we had a full crew of very experienced cinematographers. So a lot of times I didn't have to worry about that. That was really great to be able to just know like this person knows how to use this camera and they're going to kill it. So yeah, for the, for beyond the cameras that were capturing the time-lapse um, underwater and above water, what were you guys shooting on for the rest of the protection? You know, we started on a total hodgepodge, um, but we finished on Reds underwater and FS7s above water. And I'm, yeah, I'm sure we would have loved to have Reds constantly, but on, on a boat that's rocking, the FS7 was just really great because it's pretty robust and we could slap a cover on it and just run and gun. And I mean, a lot of times you're moving locations like filming underwater, filming on the boat, filming now topside, like away from a boat, like on the dock or back in hotel rooms and stuff. So just being able to need to move really, really quickly. The FS7 was an awesome, awesome camera for that. Um, and you can match the color pretty well. 
and underwater to be able to, and that was always like, this was definitely something Jeff really pushed for was when you're underwater, he wanted it to feel magical because when you scuba dive and you see a reef with all the color, it feels different. So I actually think it worked great stylistically to have the red underwater and the FS seven, which also looks beautiful above water, but it's not, I mean, the red really hit packs a punch with that. And so that just, when you get underwater, it just feels big and colorful. Cool. And I imagine there was probably a handful of GoPros as well underwater. Yes. I mean, I, like think, I, noticed. I think the only GoPro shot that made it in the film was <laughs> of the, the raft. Oh, okay. I mean, if you remember that where like Richard and I are coming up and there's these people swimming above him. Yeah. That was a GoPro yeah. shot. Um, but I don't think, I don't know how many GoPro shots there were in the film. So we'd had them recording a lot, but we also had a couple reds underwater. <laughs> it's like hard to want to use the GoPro. Okay, no film school. Uh, we have a new addition to our conversation. Antti Chang just got here. Uh, he is the cinematographer from Gook. Antti, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So while I have you and Andrew here together, uh, I wanted to ask you something and compare your experiences. Sort of a broad question. What exactly do you guys feel that it is that, you know, resonates with you about being a DP? Like, what attracted you to this medium and I think it's interesting to get both of your opinions because and you you just shot a black and white narrative and you shot this like super colorful underwater and above water documentary um so you know what appealed to you about becoming a DP so that you could you know be on a project like this I mean I think just being able to show and not tell you know I I would love to be a better writer I'm working on that but I (laughs) you know to just to be able to show someone something and and I feel like that's like kind of one of our universal languages as humans is I can show people in a room a certain thing and we'll all have different experiences with it, but it'll all mean something. Um, I think just the ability to do that and cut through language barrier and cut through, you know, tensions and politics and just all the noise that is everywhere is, I just think a really powerful feeling. And I just, I've always wanted to be able to do that. How about you, Andy? Does that sound similar to your? Yeah, I agree. Just, uh, ability to tell a story visually and uh, <clears throat> again even though I'm doing narrative video and like the documentary I think I feel like all images has like a timeless aspect of it where when if you capture it it'll be there almost forever and <clears throat> also to let the audience know see like the world through our point of view our perspectives and then that's what really draws me. Yeah, I always thought that was cool. Like when you take early photography classes, your teacher would give you all the same assignment and then everyone would come back with a different photo and you'd look at someone else's phone and go like, wow, that, I don't understand how your brain thinks like that, that that's what you captured. Mine's just like this. And I always thought that was so cool to see how, you know, especially when you limit options, um, people still come up with such different things. Like that's such a beautiful part about film and, and, and media and photography. This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Rode Microphones, 100% Australian-owned and made professional microphones for studio and broadcast. And My Rode Reel, the world's largest short film competition. Now in its fourth year running, with over 500000 in prizes given away so far, My Road Reel is back, bigger, and better in 2017. More films, new judges, and more prizes. To view past winners and register for 2017, head to MyRoadReel.com and sign up now. Okay, Auntie. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you DP Gook, 
Um, what was your relationship with the director? How did you come on board? I DP'd a UCLA thesis that got into the LA Film Festival, and Justin saw it, and he really liked the the style, the camera work, and then he reached out to the director and also to me. Wow. So was that thesis um, a feature or a short? A uh, short. Wow. So you went from a short to this incredible feature-long black and white movie that just premiered at Sundance. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> grateful for Justin and James to give me like half the faith in me <laughs> to pull this off. So how, were you nervous at all, like first day of production? Like how did you feel going into this? We had a pretty long prep in terms of just going over the script, talking about uh, Justin's visions and watching a lot of references like uh, black, my, black and white movies over the decades. And uh, yeah, and uh, on set they were just telling me that just do my own thing, like trust, my, like have belief in myself. So that was pretty like encouraging. Yeah, and I know Justin was, you know, he's the director and he's also, you know, acting in it. Yeah. So I imagine, you know, how did that affect your relationship? Was he, you know, did he want to constantly, you said he gave you some freedom. So was he acting and just checking in with you or did he want to see the shot? Like, how does the whole thing work? Some of our actors were first-time actors and he, Justin really wanted to create a comfortable environment for them to perform. So... They'll have a lot of rehearsals beforehand, but on set, he would like to keep keep them fresh so we wouldn't have any like camera rehearsals or any marks. So we both like the the camera to like also roam free with the actors and do moving masters and uh, just feed off the vibe of the actors. So each take would be different and most of the time, the first take would be the best. So it was quite a bit of pressure and challenge to get it right the first time. For the actors, it's probably like exciting to keep the takes down. But I mean, for, so you said there's a lot of pressure. Did that change the way you would do a shot, knowing that you wanted to keep it as, as contained? Yeah, it, it depends on, on the scene. Like uh, sometimes it would be suitable to do a free-flowing movie master then do a couple of coverages and some scenes will let the camera sit still and let the actors perform in the frame. So it was just uh, taking the time to go over the script and figure out the structure of the story and decide uh, to design a visual language that fits. I mean, we had our plans going in, but throughout the course of production, then we would slowly like develop our own style cool and throw the plans out the window sometimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah i mean i'd love to hear a little bit about sort of the visual strategy i mean the obvious thing that people notice right away of course that it's in black and white um can you talk to us about that choice and, and what in general did you have in your mind that you talked about with justin for the whole strategy visually so uh, Justin's vision was to shoot the film in 60mm black and white film. And uh, due to our humble budget, we shot digitally. But uh, I personally, I showed him, like, uh, throughout the years, I shoot uh, black and white film, like, stills. And uh, 
hand develop them and print them and um, he likes the subtlety like the contrast response to of black and white film like black and white it's just more pure like less distractions you can just see into the story the characters and that's why uh always decided just to commit to black and white how about um how did your relationship work with um the production designer on this film because this when it was the time period that this film set in it's setting 1992 okay that's interesting most of the set design and the costumes were in still in color and they would have to like ask me or Justin like how we'll do a lot of tests to see how it would look in in black and white because um we still shot in color like our monitors were like has zero saturation but we like I personally wanted to mix the color channels in in post because black and white film has different responses and weights to different colors it's just not like a, a basic convert so it was pretty interesting and it was like mind blowing to to them and also like some of our producer our crew they have been watching monitors all day and they finally walk on set and like the costume is in bright pink and <laughs> I was like I thought I was in white all the time yeah so you shot digitally did you say what you did shoot on? Um, we shot on the Red Epic Dragon with uh, Koa and Amorphic primes so we shot on red raw which still has all the color information so you said you wanted to to you know mix the color channels in post so you could play with the black and white and since you have such a you have a background in black and white photography were you happy with how it came out like what kind of what was the process that you did to make it get the final good image originally i want to put uh color filters like orange filters or red filters over them that's like how I usually shoot film to like bring down the sky or like bring up the skin tones. <clears throat> but then <laughs> then they were like, that's too much of a commitment <laughs> to bake that in. <laughs> so we shot normally and we could uh, tweak that with our colorist. Cool. So that makes me think about lighting because obviously when you're shooting black and white, I mean, lighting's play such a big part in how everything looks what was your philosophy for how to do the lighting on this film most of film takes place around a shoe store and inside of a shoe store so uh, luckily we found a lot and they built a store with uh, big stores facing east so we knew that this <clears throat> during the, the in the morning that the sign would cut into the windows and we can shoot out the windows. Like everyone will be backlit, sadly, with no problem. And uh, the whole film takes place in over twenty-four hours, but the film is shot in twenty-something days. So we really had to match the script time of day to shooting time of day, and then also working with the uh, our lead was. Uh, <clears throat> Simone, she was uh, 11. She, she actually turned 11 on set. <laughs> so she only could all shoot. Really, yeah. yeah. So it's just a big puzzle to figure out all the moving pieces. 
during our prep, like we really want to embrace the the sun, the, the sunshine of the. I think that gives it the last angels look, the hard light, and we'll keep. We'll continue doing that even to the interior, even to nighttime stuff. Like we'll ha- we'll always have a hard source somewhere in the frame. Yeah, and with uh, black and white, you don't we don't really have like you said we don't really have color contrast, so. It really comes down to lighting and composition. You know, having the hard light even at night, I mean, to match the LA, like psychologically, like what did you feel that the hard light, like how does it make you feel as a viewer when you use it? We'll use them as street lamps or like the floodlights, work lights. We'll set them out over the place and we can turn it on and off depending what we want to see. One thing about it is that we don't have to fiddle with gels <laughs> throughout the film. <laughs> and uh, we also used the, the newer LED for now. So that was pretty power efficient. So our night exteriors, <clears throat> we could light them with just household power. Yeah, I mean, I guess just the last question about black and white I'll ask you, <laughs> and then we can move on. I mean, what is like the central difference in... The effect of the story if you're shooting color black and white just like in your philosophical opinion i just view it as a natural creative choice like you can shoot in color you can shoot in black and white you can shoot film you can shoot digital so uh, i i don't really put much uh philosophical stuff <laughs> behind it but i know justin wanted to feel like uh it's not current days, not contemporary. Like you see it, you know that it's, it could feel real as if we're in the 90, in 92. That's the primary reason for it. And the secondary reason is just uh, faster to work in black and white. Just they don't have to match color temperature all day long and less time in grading. So it's all a budgetary reason to shoot in black and white. It's a combination of things, really. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought about that. We, we don't have to fine-tune the, like tint or colors and stuff. This was such a big jump for you to do the film. I'm sure it was you learned a lot. What would you say, like, one of the biggest things that you learned that at the end of the process you're like, oh, and maybe you would do it differently or just, or maybe not differently, but take it with you to the next project? It was a very liberating experience on set. Like there were moments like I felt wall, it's like I felt alive. <laughs> like like uh really feel like well this is what I came here to do, I wanted to do and I kinda can do. In in post like we we did have coverage but but sometimes they'll stick to the the, the moving master because since now I felt the most fresh or the most genuine and uh, I would see some technical technical mistakes like (laughs) maybe I should have uh, moved to a little bit here or like uh, the focus was a little bit late but I think that makes what makes the film has like the heart like the all the uh, imperfections make it made it like beautiful in my opinion like it doesn't have to be perfect all the time and 
I actually prefer it, prefer the aesthetics of some little imperfections, and that's the main reason we went with the anamorphics. Like we tested a bunch of lenses, modern, vintage, and with this set of core uh, anamorphics, just the the rendering of it, and <clears throat> we really loved it and how how it like all the. If you view it from like a technical point of view, it will be imperf like uh, imper imperfections, but we really loved it and embraced it. So I guess maybe the last thing that I'll ask you is, um, you know, about what can you share advice-wise for other for other DPs? I mean, especially given that you know it's such a cool opportunity for you, you're kind of just starting your career and you're already here at Sundance, having shot a feature, so. Yeah, I mean, what do you? What's your advice for other people who are prospective DPs, kind of maybe starting out in their careers as well? I think in in our generation and myself, like, like we all still young and like we all wanted to. Like, I personally was searching for shortcuts. You know, somehow I could get ahead, or <laughs> but in reality, there are. No shortcuts. Like I don't know because everyone's path is different. Like I, I came from Taiwan. Like didn't go to film school, and we just we grew up with the with the YouTube and the the five D generation, and so like we had a bunch of friends, which have fun, like made our own stuff, and somehow it got popular on the internet. So we got opportunities to shoot uh, music videos, commercials, and like shorts. But then, like we, our favorite films are all from Hollywood, so it is like the the core group, like of friends, we all decided to apply for film schools in the States altogether, like just have the leap of faith to somehow give up our sort of career, life savings, friends and family and came here and it was kind of frustrating to start from like zero, like you don't know anyone, you don't know any resources, you don't know the city. And, um, but I mean, we, we all worked pretty hard and it was just a combination of luck and, uh, Good timing, like it'll, like all the dots will connect in the end, but it wouldn't make sense at first. Yeah, my advice is, it's the same as like everyone's advice: just uh, keep on shooting and uh, be yourself, like do your own style. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, thank you, Auntie, so much for talking to us and sharing all your insight. Um, really excited to see the film and excited to follow your career and see, you know, what you do next. Thank you. This is Oakley Anderson Moore. Thanks for listening to the No Film School podcast. Stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly this Thursday and subscribe to the podcast on any podcast platform out there. 